How about if we pray on this beautiful fall morning? Lord, we have so much to be reminded of from the very moment we wake, from the sleep and the rest that we received, to the comforts of the home in which we slept, to the beautiful fall, crisp air, to the just the beginning of the day, especially this day that we have the privilege of gathering with the saints and worshiping you in a corporate way. Lord, I pray from the daily and constant worship that we offer up to you in all that we do, all that we think, and all that we diligently pursue. Lord, we thank you for these truths that can cast a dark cloud over our observation of society and all that is around us. But Lord, there is nothing truer than how bright the light is when it is darkest. And Lord, you are that light. You are that truth, and you truly set us free, and for this we are ever thankful. And so we praise you now, and we do this in your precious name, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so we'll uh, continue on. Um, and I think it's good to just continue to, to let me refresh your minds. We're gonna, I'm going to read again Romans 124 through 32. And, I, and again, as we spoke a few weeks ago, pay attention to the, to the because and the therefores. Because those are the, the causes, the factors, the, right? That, that, that is what... You see, it is because of this I am doing this, says the Lord in this passage through Paul. So let me read from Romans 1.24 again. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature, and there it is, rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And this morning, I want you to pay attention to that, who is blessed forever. There's just a beautiful symphony throughout Scripture, but particularly out to the latter books that were written, the epistles, about this blessed forever. Verse 26, for this reason, here it comes again, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, human nature, what we instinctively know to be right and wrong, given to us by God, embedded in our conscience and then informed by the scriptures. contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in 
themselves the due penalty for their error. And we discussed this last week, verse 28. And here comes what seems to be the, the precondition to the verses we just heard, doesn't it? I'll tell you what's scary about this next section of Scripture. Look how rampant it is in our society today. Look how thoughtless people are about conducting their lives marked by these behaviors and often exalted by these behaviors. This is the bottom of this giving over. That's fearful to me. This is the bottom. And I, let, let's just have a little moment of conviction for the people of God. How many of these that I'm about to read off can you identify in your life this past week, maybe yesterday, today? You're going to find a bunch of them if you're honest. That's kind of hard, isn't it? Verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. And the best way to describe a debased mind is in the book of Isaiah, and we'll come back to that after I read it. To do what ought not to be done, for they were filled with all manner of not doing right, unrighteousness. Simply not doing what's right. Guilty. Evil. Covetousness. Covet is to simply want what you don't have. Right? Malice, intent to do harm. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. And here comes one of those far too common, comfortable sins, is they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, simply thinking highly of oneself than they ought. Boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, guilty, dead guilty, right? Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, just a... Uh, a mark of our society, but yet it is the bottom of this giving over by God. I just want that to get a hold of you because that, that's a fearful reality of our society today. But verse 32 really begins to open up a whole nother reality of this. Though they knew God's righteous decrees, they're not without excuse. They know it. It's right here, right? You can, have you ever watched a pair of two-year-olds or a room full of two-year-olds? Right before they poke somebody in the eye? They already know. It's in there. We've all seen it. Though they know God's righteous decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, 
but give approval to those who practice them. Look at what's going on in our nation around abortion. Around the exaltation, around the privileges given to one group of constituencies versus another because of behaviors that are squarely in the middle of this passage. That is a society that is not being or on the verge of, it is a society that has long been given over. Long been given over. To what though, right? We're going to touch on that a little bit this morning. I want you to look at Isaiah 15, 13. I'll read it to you. And I'll start with verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at, at their feast, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. They don't even acknowledge God. Isaiah 15, sorry. I'm sorry, not 15, Isaiah 5. No wonder James is looking at me so confused. Isaiah 5, started in verse 11, sorry. But verse 13 is what I want you to see. Therefore, sound familiar? My people go into exile for lack of knowledge. And I would offer that this is spiritual knowledge. This is the knowledge of the truth of Christ setting us free from all the things that sound good but are purposed and intended to destroy us and to destroy the family and to destroy society and to destroy the law so we can have a world full of absolute lawless chaos, right? And here we see it with Israel. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge, their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. And he goes on to verse 20, which I think epitomizes a society turned over by God like no other passage does. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. This is the debased mind that literally looks at something that is absolutely evil and exalted as good and consequently has to take what is good and declare it evil in order to continue in their exaltation of what is truly evil. Do you, do you not see that rampant in our society? Who put darkness for light 
and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. In verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. They have no external knowledge or internal knowledge of God and his truth. So they just get to make it up, right? We talked a little last week. We waded through a self-professed homosexual man who described horrifically the life of the homosexual community, particularly the male community. This whole study has invoked the importance of understanding the holiness of God. We really won't quite understand why God responds the way he does if we don't understand the holiness of God. And one of the things we've seen throughout this passage is man's greatest failure that he is without excuse is not to worship God as he is rightly to be worshiped. That's what you see all the way throughout. It's what we just saw in this passage of Isaiah. So I want to just take a little detour into a small picture of the holiness of God. And I'm going to go to Revelation 14 for it. And I'm going to just read in verse 1 and I'm going to move through this. But I just want you to see how the glorified saints and the angels elect see God so that we can encourage our efforts to see God this very same way, particularly in the midst of that laundry list of ugly sins that we saw in Romans 1, when that temptation is right here, right? Just look at this beautiful... And I, as I was reading this again this morning, I thought about this is our God. And he's like the general in the battle who has his men and women on the battlefield. And he is not going to rest until he is gone and extracted every one of them back out of that. Think about that when you read these passages in Revelation 14 or listen as I read them. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. And this is just fascinating to me. And with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder, the voice I heard was like the sound of a harpist playing on their harps. And here's one of the key to this passage. And they were singing a new song before the throne, which hearkens you right back to Psalm 98, where the new song was all the work that God was doing in Israel to bring them out of Egypt. You see how God has shaped entire movements of society in order to point us to this time that we're reading about right here? That's phenomenal to think about. Entire movements of nations moved 
right? The line embedded in Egypt and over 400 years grows up to be an Israel of a million plus people so that God can extract them out of Egypt and take them to where? The promised land. <laughs> the land that David has been so faithful to teach us about. So this new song invokes something new on top of all that God did with Israel and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from where? Earth. Boy, that just, somebody who wants to go, what's that all about when they're doing their studies? This one just chases them all over the place. 144,000 Jewish men stamped on the forehead, sealed from this earth. Right? From each tribe, which means God knows exactly the lines of those tribes. <laughs> I love that. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women. And we often get kind of, well, what's that mean? That is simply to say they have been pure if married in the marriage covenant. They have not defiled themselves with adultery of any kind, right? They are pure and devoted to the Lord. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits of God and the Lamb. So they are a special first fruit and have a mighty job. And you know what it is? To go onto the field with the general and bring back all the people that belong to him. And in their mouth, no lie was found, for they are blameless. Verse 6. Then I saw, look at the extent at which God's going to go to make sure that even though we're already without excuse, we are really without excuse after this passage, right? Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, all of them, to every nation and tribe and language and people so that no one is without excuse, none. Very similar in parallel to some of the things we see in our Romans passage. And he said with a loud voice, what? Fear God and give him glory. That is the chief end of man. <laughs> Fear God and give him glory. Because the hour of his, and here comes the new theme, judgment has come. That's why we should fear God and instill in the heart of anybody who rejects God a fear of God because it is a fear of the Lord that what? It's the beginning of the wisdom that God uses to redeem us. If you witness faithfully, you're going to get a lot of people that say, fear God? That's not the God I've been taught about. The God I know is just love. He would never harm anybody. That's a lie right out of hell. 
And it's one of the reasons why we have so many people perfectly comfortable in their false religions, placebos. They're the strongholds that we t- we're taught about. You've got you to snatch them out of that with the spiritual truths of Christ alone. Fear God. We're just getting a lesson from these angels. Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him. There it is. Who made heaven and earth. There's the Sabbath. And see in the springs of the water. And how wonderful is it to do it this time of year? Right? Verse 14. And here's the, and then comes judgment, right? Then I looked and behold, a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, which was the phrase Jesus referred to himself more than any other phrase, the son of man, to relate to us. with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand, and another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. And here comes the holiness of God in his treatment of unrepentant sin. This is the holiness of God we often don't like to look at. But this is the holiness of God who cannot look upon sin unpunished and that is why he gave us his beloved son to set us free from this right here put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe So he who sat on the cloud swung the sickle across the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape of the earth, grape harvest of the earth, excuse me, and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God, which is how our passage in Romans 1 starts. For the wrath of God is revealed. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and this is fearful, and blood flowed from the wine press as high as the horse's bridle. Up to your waist for you men. But look at heaven in Revelation 15. Look at heaven and look at what's going on. And imagine the purity of this worship finally. (laughs) Because he's holy, and that's what we'll see. And they sing the song of Moses. There's that new song. The servant of God and the song of the Lamb saying, Great 
And amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name. Who would not fear what they just witnessed in Revelation 14? For you alone are holy, the holiness of God. And just like the way we often measure ourselves against other people, we're using the wrong scale. It's the same for holiness. Don't try to comprehend God's holiness by measuring it with human standards. You will end up with a God who is, at best, Santa Claus. What does Santa Claus do? He winks at sin, doesn't he? Just saying. <laughs> Be careful with that guy. A couple of thoughts on this passage. The reference to the new song really harkens back to many of the days in Israel, but I, I particularly appreciate Second Chronicles twenty nine twenty seven, pointed out by Dr. MacArthur, that that song sung to the Lord was part of the restoration of the true worship of Israel, which had fallen away for many, many years. So it's very tied to restoring true worship to God. All these false religions and false churches and false believers are now called out and cold. And what remains is true worship. What did Jesus tell the woman at the well? For the Father is seeking those who worship him in spirit and in truth, from your heart and soul, in the truths of Scripture, so that you can know who the true God is, right? We are inundated with placebos in this area. <laughs> why, why would God, over time, generation after generation, do this abandonment and turning over of society, which we're about to read about from 2,000 years ago, and then start with another generation and another generation and another generation as he has for now 2,000 years. That is just a small taste of what hell is going to be like. Hell is where all the restraints are off of evil in the hearts of every evil person who rejected and hated God is literally unrestrained. And he keeps showing it to us generation after generation after generation, right? To warn us, just like Revelation 14. How holy and merciful is God? I want you to think about something. 
How's God think about big sins and little sins in our lives? This is the conviction part for me, right? I want to read from Numbers 20, a scene that you've all heard and seen and thought about. But I want us to just pay attention to what exactly was the sin here and what was the consequence? And do they seem in our minds to be, you know, fair? Numbers 20, verse 2. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against, so you see the picture, Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, and Moses was that guy that killed somebody, right? They had a little anger problem. Would that we had perished when our brothers and the people quarreled, verse 3, sorry, with Moses and said, would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. <laughs> I can kind of relate, Moses, right? Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into the wilderness? And Moses saying, wait a minute. <laughs> that we should die here, both we and our cattle. Pretty desperate situation. And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? And God is passively watching this, is he not? The Lord is. Let me say it this way. I think he's testing Moses and Aaron, isn't he? Romans 12, 1 and 2. So that by testing... This is the testing that goes on. It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence to the assembly to the entrance of the tent of the meeting and fell on their faces. Thanks be to God for that. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now pay attention when the Lord says, Right. Pay attention to what he says. Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and what? Tell the rock. There it is. One little four-letter word. Tell the rock. Behind their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and to their cattle. And before we get to the next part, what is God doing for the people of Israel despite their horrendous behavior? What is God intending? Mercy. And I, I'll just be honest with you. It's funny saying, isn't it? Like I'm up here lying the rest of the time. This just cut my heart right in half. I literally thought about the people who I have, like, just, oh, right? How can you act like that? How can you be such a fool? How can you, right, 
All those things that Romans 1 talks about, right out of my heart. And what really convicted me was, is God standing there wanting to have mercy on that person through me? And all I'm doing is playing the judge as if I were God and had saved myself and am now condemning them. That is a fine line that we ought to be walking all the time. God was having mercy. Verse 10, then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. So far, so good. And he said to them, here now you what? There he is. There, there I am. <laughs> you rebels. Right? Do you see the immediate separation between the high and mighty Moses and Aaron here? And all the rebels? Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? He's taunting them. And Moses lifted up his hand and what? Struck the rock with his staff, not just once, but twice. Moses took God's mercy and the commandments to do good. And he used it as an opportunity to just act out his anger at these people. And we can ask, who was more endearing to these people? Moses or the merciful God who was really in the background, hidden by Moses? How many times do we hide the merciful God because of the way we behave towards unbelievers? Guilty. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock, and everything was happy at that point, right? At least some level of relief. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, and here it comes. And you have to ask, much like the garden, is the consequence, the judgment, consistent with the sin in our eyes? Or is there something we are completely missing? Because you did not what? Believe in me. Boy, that gives a whole new shade to our sinful ways, doesn't it? To, to sin against God is to show him our unbelief in some part of God that he is right and his commandments are right, or that he really will be mocked and I really won't reap what I sow, even as a believer. Right? Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. And there it is. There's our mandate, to uphold God as holy in the eyes of all people. As he has revealed himself, not as we want to try to, you know, shape him to be more appealing, maybe. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. That is, think about that. This is everything these two men have been 
doing is leading these people to this land. And this one fit of anger, this one fit of anger, and they are forbidden to bring the assembly into the land. A lot like David and his consequence, right? And the counting. A lot like Adam as he was separated from perfect communion with God and the perfect paradise. And I found it interesting to think about Joseph in this case, where Joseph got to be the mouthpiece for God about his brothers who meant it for evil when God meant it for good. And here Moses is the guy who meant it for evil and God meant it for good. To show himself holy, to show himself to be a God who is faithful to his word with those stiff-necked people. His words, not mine. Right? Okay. Now, I want to just take a few minutes and wallow through We stopped last time with the community that we see today so highly exalted and a voice from within that just says it is destroying us. We often think that this is something new, so I'm going to make sure that we don't see it that way. I'm going to just read this for you. It's a snapshot of history directly in the generation of the ministry of our Lord. And it comes to us from Tacitus and Suetonius. Suetonius, who did a work of the lives of the Caesars. And I'd mentioned the multitude of Caesars that were just like Nero, right? Well, here's a little snapshot to, the, to help us see that what we see today is the exact same abandoning wrath that God had on society back then. Let me just read, and this is very difficult, for adults only, frankly. Nero also coerced leading citizens to give opulent feasts that would ruin them financially. Interesting. He engaged in all types of sexual perversions. Now, I want you to keep in mind, this is the ruler that Peter and Paul are commanding the church to submit to and honor. He engaged in all types of sexual perversions, even attempting to commit incest with his mother, Agrippina. When more stable minds prevented such debauchery, he had one of the concubines made to look just like his mother. And I'm showing you a picture of a man who is the supreme leader who has a mind that is debased to the absolute core. He went so far as to castrate two of his freedmen, Sporos and Dorophus, and force them into become transsexuals 2,000 years ago. 
He married them in public, in a public ceremony, and led them about in the streets of Rome as his wives. Near the end of his reign at eighty sixty four, Nero reversed this perversion. He married another man, but this time he played the part of the bride. And this shameful incident may have been precipitated by the infamous banquet that I won't even go into. But it involved behavior of every perverse form, utterly unrestrained and exalted by everybody there. The commentary goes on to say, Tacitus notes that Nero's moral decadence became the wretched standard for subsequent emperors actually for the next 300 years. The church was born under this. Nero's impact on the Christian church extended far beyond the martyrdom of Paul. Suetonius portrayed Nero's persecution of the church as a high point in his early rule. This means that prior to the close of the first century, the general population, the millions of people in Rome, viewed the Christians with contempt and were permeated with this kind of perversions. And Solomon says, there's nothing new under the sun. The problem is us. It's not the times, it's not the influence, it's this right here. Dr. MacArthur says, by the time of the writing of the Corinthian letters, homosexuality was so widespread that it was unbelievable. 14 out of the first 15 Roman emperors were professed homosexuals. Socrates was a homosexual. Plato was most likely a homosexual. Found in their writing, found everywhere. So this was just the pattern of living in those days, the characteristics of their former life, the violent history of Rome's persecution, the church that began with Nero would continue under this for the next 300 years. And I want to just quickly read Paul, in 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 2, the guy that was going to be martyred by this guy. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. 
This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And you want to know what one of the most powerful, if you've ever read about the early church martyrs, what was one of the most powerful testimonies and witnesses that brought more people to Christ than anything else was the fact that they could stand on a stack of wood and be burned to death while they were singing psalms as if they didn't even feel the pain. I want to leave us with this thought about what's now ahead. So we saw the last week, the times we're living. Now 2,000 years ago, I want to point you to the time of the end. 2 Thessalonians 2, 6 and 7 says, And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. When the Holy Spirit lets go, society utterly falls apart. That is precisely what happens here. And I'll draw from Dr. MacArthur's commentary on this passage to just try to imagine the level of sexual and all other forms of perversion that will occur when this final letting go takes place. He says, the worship of the Antichrist during the tribulation will be unspeakable, vile, and perverse. As it did in the fertility cults of ancient times, sexual sin will apparently run rampant. Even in the current grossly immoral day in which we live, we can hardly imagine what the deviant sexual perversions of the tribulation will be like. With all divine restraint removed... And the unbelieving world judgmentally abandoned by God. That is our passage. Sin will be released like a flood, inundating the world and fanning the hellish flames of wickedness by Satan and his demon host. Both those cast from heaven with him and those vile demons newly released from the pit of hell. That's what's going to drive this level of perversion. So again, why is God continually turning society over so we can see, so that we can see what's coming in the tribulation period and the day of judgment? And even that is simply a foretaste of hell so that we can go about and be faithful people in teaching the fear of the Lord because it's coming. And that's what this passage is going to walk us into. And we'll touch on that next week as we carry on. So thank you for bearing with this study. Thank you, Andrew. You're welcome.